Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we are here to help you become more bankless. David, how are you doing this week, my friend? Doing really good. Just came out of a fantastic interview with the Winklevoss twins. Getting the Winklevoss onto the Bankless podcast was an absolute blast and picking their brains about how they think about this space, where they think the space is going, and also where Gemini is going is was a really insightful, uh, really t- tip of the hat to the Winklevoss twins to building a really awesome exchange. And in my opinion, building something that is going to be really successful and crucial infrastructure into the future. Ryan, what did you really enjoy about this interview? Well, look, I, I, I think it was cool because, you know, uh, who hasn't seen the social network, right? Um, you know, it kind of felt like we were interviewing c- celebrities uh, in their own right. But now the Winklevoss twins are big into crypto and have really developed a, a compelling exchange offering. But I, I like this because we were able to ask questions that I think a lot of people in crypto haven't asked them. So talking about DeFi, talking about bankless, uh, at one point we, we, we brought up the subject, well, how can DeFi, how can crypto banks remain neutral in this space? Uh, will they become just like the traditional banks if given uh, enough power? And, and they had a good answer to that. I think one of my big takeaways really uh, from, from this conversation is they see Gemini as being a, a bridge, almost an interface for money protocols with Bitcoin and Ether being sort of the first of a, of a set, but then also DAI. They seemed open even to, to integrating the DAI savings rate and possibly compound protocols like Aave down the line. They seemed open to that. And when you brought up the, the protocol sync thesis, um, they nodded their heads yes, basically. Yeah, uh, I think the protocol sync thesis is going to be a very reoccurring question for all incoming guests on the Bankless podcast. And it was really exciting to hear their appreciation of that thesis. Uh, and so in the Bitcoin space, we often see you know Bitcoin banks, things like BlockFi, things where you deposit your Bitcoin and you get some banking services. And I think Gemini... There, and behind the scenes, what I think is kind of going on is there's a race to become the DeFi bank, right? Um, so we talked about what would it take for uh, companies like Gemini to be compliantly integrating something like a MakerDAO vault or any sort of other financial services based on the protocols found on Ethereum. Uh, so that's really where the we end up in this conversation. But we go through and kind of get the uh, history of the the Winklevoss twins. Uh, Ryan, you did a really good job uh, expanding on the metaphor of them building out their rowing team in the uh, in the town that no one had a rowing team in, and then using that as an extrapolation for how the Winklevoss seem to be ahead of the curve. So really fantastic interview. In fact, it was such a great interview that we have decided to cut the big picture segment out of this particular episode. And we will be releasing that as its own standalone episode on Wednesday. There was a ton of stuff that has happened in the Ethereum and crypto space. And me and Ryan go on for almost an hour talking about it and so we didn't really want to have a two and a half hour long episode so we broke that part of the episode out and are releasing it as a standalone episode coming this wednesday as a bonus episode so stay tuned for that a little extra bankless content coming your way this week
Before we get into the interview, though, let is, let's talk about our sponsors. Our first sponsor is Monolith. If you guys have your assets inside of Ethereum, but you also want to live your life, Monolith for our European customers might be the product for you. They have their DeFi card, which is a Visa card connected to a smart contract wallet on Ethereum so that when you go to the store, you buy your coffee, you buy your groceries, you swipe your Monolith card, and then your DAI gets deducted out of your smart contract wallet sold for dollars, and then you make a, a, a both a transaction on Ethereum and a transaction on the Visa network. Really crucial infrastructure for people that want to live a bankless life, but don't really want to compromise and be that weird friend that doesn't have any real money. Uh, <laughs> real money. I like that. Uh, so you can download the app at monolith.xyz to get your bankless Visa card today. And then you can get some of the world's economic activity placed onto the Ethereum network. All right, guys, I am super excited to introduce you to our next new sponsor, Ramp. What is holding crypto back? It's really getting fiat into the crypto system. That's what's holding DeFi back. The problem is a new user has to create an account with an exchange to buy some crypto. They have to wire funds. They have to go through a whole bunch of steps. What's holding DeFi apps back? The exact same thing. Users drop off in the signup process and it really limits the DeFi market to hardcore crypto people. But no longer. Ramp solves that. Ramp has a delightfully easy fiat on ramp service. So it lets users get crypto, ETH, DAI, USDC in five minutes or less. That's right, five minutes or less. No exchange needed. And a new user can have crypto right into their account and start using the app. So if you are a developer, this takes about 10 minutes to implement. They've got very easy to use APIs, apps like DeFi apps like Zerion, Ethereum, Taurus are using Ramp. You can visit ramp.network to see how easy this is. This is really an opportunity for DeFi developers to 100x their addressable market size. This is like the ultimate growth hack. And here's what's cool. If you mention Bankless, they will on-ramp the first 100K from your app of USD free. So that's 100K free when you mention Bankless. Go to ramp.network and check it out. R-A-M-P.network. Mention Bankless and check it out. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get right into the interview with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss of Gemini Exchange. Okay, we are in for a special episode today. David and I are here with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. They are the co-founders of Gemini, partners at Winklevoss Capital, rowing Olympians. They were involved in the original idea behind Facebook. You may have seen them in the social network. These guys have done a lot, including see crypto extra early. My first question, Cameron, to you is, how did you get at Winklevoss on Twitter before Tyler, man? It's a great question. Um, the simple answer is Cameron Winklevoss doesn't actually fit. Twitter doesn't give you enough space for that handle. So we figured someone will take <laughs> Winklevoss better be one of us as opposed to someone else. So yeah, nice. Tyler, do you ever ask uh, if you could you know share that account or is it is it all Cameron's? It's definitely Cameron's. Um, a lot of people sort of taunt me on Twitter and say, "Oh, why'd T get it and not you?" 
And I guess because like, yeah, Cameron's reasoning, my name uh, fits by default and his doesn't, which I think is actually the cooler thing. But I guess I guess <laughs> reasonable, mind, reasonable minds can disagree. So, okay. So speaking of reasonable minds, we want to start here because something that I think is super fascinating about you guys is you tend to see things early. Like that's been the case. So uh, seeing Facebook before Facebook in the early 2000s, in the early aughts, um, pretty incredible. But also seeing crypto before, and Bitcoin specifically, before most of the population saw it, like back in 2012, my first question is, uh, how do you guys see these things so early? Like, is there a recipe? Is there a formula? Can you teach us how to do this? You know, it, it, it's a it's an interesting question, and I think we've definitely asked ourselves that before. And I think part of it comes down to just a lot of curiosity, and we tend to approach problems with a total beginner's mind. So we don't have all these like preconceived notions or ideas or assumptions that we bring with us when we're evaluating a new thing. And that was definitely true with Bitcoin when we found it in 2012. Um, and it was also true of social networking in, in the early 2000s. Um, most people were not, did not believe that people would be uh, readily sharing information and photos online. Um, it was uh, not a popular concept at all. In fact, most people online we're using avatars to basically cloak their identity or have some level of privacy. So this idea that people would be themselves and really want to establish their online identity and link it to their real world identity, that was novel. Um, and I think we just thought that, you know, we, we believed in that concept that, that your, your real world identity will eventually be mapped onto your online identity. Um, and it was definitely not a popular belief at the time, um, but we we sort of, you know, it, it made a lot of sense, I guess, instinctually to us. Um, and um, we, we sort of shut out the noise in that regard, because if you look around everywhere else, people are always looking for, for identity and uh, belonging in a group, whether it's your college, your an alumni of the university or a high school or sports team. So it felt like that's pretty common human behavior that's existed forever. Um, why would the online world be much different? Um, and so we, we weren't, uh, I guess, distracted by a lot of the noise out there. Do you guys think that's a problem? Like, is that why people miss crypto? I've heard so many stories about, you know, people seeing it and reading an article in 2011, 2012, and then just dismissing it at the time, picking it up maybe later. We even saw like Goldman released a report today uh, where they, they talked about Bitcoin being uh, tulips, you know, our, our favorite right, analogy. Right. We're back to the tulips again. <laughs> like, Yeah, that was like eight years ago. <laughs> is that the problem? Are, are, are people, you know, traditional finance and people who dismiss crypto, are they just not looking at this thing with a beginner's mind? So I think there's a couple things at play here. Um one of them is absolutely the people are not approaching it with a beginner's mind and sort of this um, carte blanche and open thinking and ability to say, okay, wait a second, this is a totally new um, area. What are, what are the, what's the promise behind it? What is the inherent benefits or whatever? But stepping back, 
why do people not approach problems with a beginner's mind? And I think a lot of that could be uh, because you became the master of the universe in something for decades in the traditional world of finance. And you're forced to basically disrupt yourself and challenge all the things that you hold dear and that you understood. And you have to reinvent yourself. And it's costly and time consuming and takes conviction and effort. And a lot of people just don't want to effectively disrupt themselves um, and reinvent themselves. And those that do and are willing to kind of challenge that over and over again are the ones that are able to see around, you know, the next wave, the next future. So there's a lot of that um, behind their inability to, you know, see the promise here or unwillingness um, because they have, you have an existing franchise and customer base and you, you people like what they know. Um, so I think that's a large part of it. It's also why you see, you see crypto, there's sort of the breakdown on the, the believers versus the non-believers. A lot of it is just an age thing. Um, and not because uh, people who are older can't get these ideas, but because like Cameron said, they've acquired this experience, this skills, they have an asset that all of a sudden may not be relevant in the new world order of crypto. And so whenever you talk to a millennial, like they, they're totally bought in. You never convince a millennial about Bitcoin because they ultimately they have very little to lose. If you're 18 uh, in high school, just out of high school, even a college student, you have like negative to lose, right? You have, you have like student loans. So it's not like you built this whole career and you have like real estate and mortgages to uphold and, and you know, this whole life in this system um, that you all of a sudden have to give up. So that's definitely part of it. Um, why, you know, I think why a lot of people don't get it. I think, believe it or not, uh, people, a lot of people are inherently pessimists. Um, they, they don't see maybe the new opportunity or they're not motivated by it. We've always been motivated by increasing choices, um, you know, in, in creating new alternatives. And this kind of goes back to even our days in high school. There was actually no crew team at our school. Our next door neighbor went to boarding school. He's a little bit older, learned how to row and was successful. And we heard about his exploits. And um, we decided like we were tall. We knew we kind of had the build. We didn't really know what that meant. But just like someone who's tall knows that maybe they could be good at basketball. We understood that being tall might be good at rowing. So we found a rowing club, started rowing, found this amazing coach, uh, really liked it. And then went to the headmaster and started the team at our school. And effectively, we manufactured this opportunity for ourselves to become athletes in a certain way that didn't exist. And it's simply because we, we asked the question, like, why doesn't this exist? There's plenty of water. There's actually a rowing club 30, 45 minutes away. All of the elements are here. Um, we, we can do this. And of course, we manufactured, we created that opportunity. We, we, we joked that... It was very much our first startup. Um, we rode in college and then rode in the Olympics. That never would have happened if we had accepted the world around us and the options that were available to us. And so I don't know, like, is it thinking outside the box? But we really were like curious and like, like Cameron said, and we wanted greater choices and we just didn't accept. We asked the question, didn't just accept what was there. 
And we've continued to do that, whether it was social networking. Hey, let's we, we go to school um, in in Boston, this, uh, you know, and there's so many universities, there's so many students, yet we're coming into our junior year. We don't really it doesn't feel like everyone's in their bubble and everyone's busy and we want a better way to connect with students. So um, we thought there was like a better way or possibility. And social network was that sort of way to express it. And then taking that further to, to money, um, when we saw this idea, we didn't dismiss it like skeptics or pessimists. We're like, okay, what is money um, today? And what's wrong with it? And what is this thing? And why does it have merit or doesn't? And like, we weren't completely sure at first. Um, I think Cameron said to me, this is either complete bullshit or the next big thing. But let's let's take a look. Let's at least like take it seriously and give it some credibility because the smartest people in the room are are so passionate about it. They're putting every penny of their life, all their time. And so that dedication was was really interesting. And we we start we we decided to look more, which isn't saying that much, but I guess it's a lot more than most people did. That's some some great background with you guys and the the story of the, the how you got started the the rowing team I I feel like is a, a a preamble of what's to come or what came with Gemini. So before we get into to Gemini, can maybe you you guys can illustrate what you saw in crypto uh, that really uh, brought you into the world of crypto, like uh, and maybe some of your pre-existing beliefs about the world like were you guys Austrian economics are you or or did you believe in the Austrian uh, school do, do you did that change your mind coming into the crypto space or how what did you see in crypto and how has that changed you guys now that you guys are in the world so we both actually majored in economics in um in undergrad at Harvard um but I think that it wasn't really until, at least for me personally, when I saw Bitcoin, when I really started to challenge my understanding and belief of money. Um, and I think we look at Bitcoin from a lot of different angles, and I'm not sure if it necessarily all fits under one school of thought. Uh, there, there's elements of, of a lot of them in there. Um, but I think the, you know, the store of value properties are, are clearly, obviously very important, right? If you're trying to create a hedge to fiat currency regimes, which on average have a lifespan of 27 years and uh, people who live in the US, we never really challenged, you know, the idea of the dollar. It's, it's what we've known. It's been a very pretty good medium of exchange and, and store of value for, for a long period of time. Um, but that's not true of many and most parts of the world. Um, and so fiat currency in general, um, creating alternatives uh, like stores of value are very important um, to protecting people's value. And then there's the elements of censorship resistance um, and all these other interesting ideas around payments um, that Bitcoin comes along with. So I'm not sure if there was like one thing for us, but uh, we love the idea of like a new system that is essentially enforced by cryptography and math and incredibly transparent and open. Um, you, there's no inside baseball uh, with, with, the, with Bitcoin. There is no um, sort of Federal Reserve behind closed doors 
um, people making decisions and then explaining to the rest of us what's going on. Um, it's all open kimono and open source. Now it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily like the only system, but it, you know, it's, it's amazing that that system and that opportunity at least exists um, in addition to the, you know, previous system. You know, it's really interesting you say that. So like something that that resonates, I think, about about your story and how you approach things like philosophically and you know, escaping your meme bubble and disrupting yourself and all of these things. But you also seem to think in um, like non-zero-sum games, like win-wins, right? So a lot of people in crypto, I think, are here to disrupt the state and tear down the existing system. But I get the sense that you guys are a bit more along the ethos of, well, like this system is new and different. It's not necessarily going to completely disrupt the old traditional system, but we're going to create this new system in parallel that's going to have its its its, its advantages. So it's a little bit like rowing, right? Uh, when you're growing up, you, you added rowing to the roster of other sports that were offered in your community. It didn't take away from those other sports. It provided a new alternative. Is that how you see it? Yeah. I mean, look, we didn't start the rowing team to dis- destroy the football team. Uh, we created it to create um, more choice, more independence, and, and more opportunity. And I think the same is true with crypto. It's another um, system, another choice, you know, another opportunity. And it, interestingly, if you actually spend a lot of effort trying to destroy the previous system or the existing system, you're actually, you know, uh, reducing <laughs> one option or a choice. Yes. Um, you're, you're reducing uh, a system or eliminating or trying to eliminate a system that uh, a lot of people still use. Um, yeah, and, and plus you, you piss off all the football players and they could be on your side. They could be good rowers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you'll see some athletes will change sports like that. Just like some, a lot of people in wall street have are leaving wall street to join crypto. Um, you know, did email disrupt completely snail mail? Um, no, you know, and sometimes you have to actually physically send something through mail and email, uh, doesn't quite work. So, um, you know, I think we, we view crypto as, as like a new color, as opposed to like trying to be, um, better, uh, you know, better at red, um, a better red or something, a different shade of red. And, um, you know, the, the, the argue, like gold, for instance, I mean, people, yeah, this, this us versus them, I think the zero something is definitely not our, our style. Um, just like the argument that gold disrupts us, you know, a share of Apple stock doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, um, do we really believe in a, in a, in a world where, you know, gold is the only asset or the only, uh, currency like gold can be currency but generally people have shifted to to fiat currencies and and it's been an uh currency and money has been this 10,000 year old experiment and ultimately there's so many different ways to express yourself there's so many different definitions of money and crypto is just the latest iteration of it but like um if bitcoin if bitcoin disrupts something it's gold or if it takes away but I think it's very hard to be all things to all people. Um, you know, at least, you know, you have to be, I think focus is super important. And I think ultimately assets and what they do and how they perform 
is very specialized. Like if you look at um, the diff- go to the Olympic Village and you'll see how different um, different athletes are. The physiques, the sizes, the shapes, the tall, short. Um, you know, LeBron James is the best basketball player in the world, but and Nadi, Nadia Comaneci was maybe the best gymnast of all time. They're the world's best at what they do. They're both athletes, but they'd be terrible at each other's sports. Um, so I think I think there's a there's there's a a big spectrum of like of of assets, of currency, of money, and it's hard to be everything. So in Bitcoin, there is a wide spectrum of people that have different stances towards uh, you know a, a authority or the state, right? Like you have the the ultra libertarians who want nothing to do with the state and believe in crypto anarchism. Uh, but I, I believe what you guys are saying, where there's this zero, uh, where there's no zero sum games between Bitcoin and legacy systems, and there's actually room for more people to kind of have one foot in, in both camps. I see that reflected in the ethos of Gemini, where you guys are um, very strongly m- uh, making your brand about how Gemini is like a very compliant, very regulated, uh, uh, following the rules type of uh, financial institution where people who are perhaps maybe nervous or scared about crypto can start to actually uh, look at the Gemini company and see a lot of familiar features there. Can you guys talk about um, the ethos behind Gemini and, and if that reflects reality or not? Sure. That that definitely, uh, I think, is a good assessment of what we're trying to do. And and we grew up in the Wild West of Bitcoin, the early days when it was a Bitcoin world. Uh, we bought a lot of Bitcoin on Mt. Gox, which famously imploded a few years later. Uh, thankfully, we weren't injured in that implosion. Um, we, you know, when we purchased coin, we pulled it off exchange uh, shortly thereafter, never really wanted to be exposed to the counterparty risk of an exchange being run by two Frenchmen in Tokyo that was a pivot from a magic, the online gathering exchange. Didn't feel like uh, safety and soundness was was a core principle of uh, Mt. Gox. And through that experience, we said, look, as amazing as this technology is or might be, if we can't build um, and earn and maintain trust in this new asset class and demystify a lot of the things that are, you know, that people have questions around, then it's never really going to go mainstream. And I don't think you can point to a a market, a viable, thriving market anywhere in the world that doesn't have some element of thoughtful regulation. It just doesn't exist. Um, maybe, you know, so, some people have this view that that it's perhaps possible with the right incentives, but but we just haven't seen it. Uh, and so. When we started thinking more about, okay, how how do we really get Bitcoin mainstream, we thought about investing in an exchange and ultimately decided that uh, we should just go build one because most people were thinking about the problem um, from a technology lens or solely from that that narrow perspective saying, you know, I can build um, a matching engine that's more reliable than Mt. Gox and has more uptime. But there's there's uh, a lot of key considerations, um, one of which is security, of course, and we've always sort of operated with a security first mentality. 
with Gemini. And then there's a big piece around compliance and licensing. And you can't get a bank account or get banked as a business if you don't have licensing um, and a compliance function. And those are hard problems that um, are not a lot of fun to solve for, but are really necessary and important to getting a license and also to a large number of people who want to enter the space of crypto. So we, we you know, I guess the, the way to sum up the ethos of Gemini is we started by asking permission, not forgiveness. Uh, we went in the fr- front door of regulators engaged with the New York Department of Financial Services and decided, you know, we want to pursue a trust company license in New York, not just for institutional customers, but also for individuals, the entire spectrum. And we want to create the highest bar of compliance and regulatory oversight available at the time so that people, when they enter this new asset class, which is kind of a scary thing for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people stayed on the sidelines, like they understood conceptually and they loved Bitcoin, but they didn't think there was a safe way to get involved. And and that's that's a fair assumption when you look at the history of of uh you know behavior in the space it's been a lot of um unfortunately there's been a lot of hacks and and problematic behavior that doesn't engender trust so we we really said you know we've got to help correct this narrative and let's see if we can start building and maintaining trust with people yeah i I think a lot of people who came later in the space and you know even memory fades but people forget how crazy it was back in that era of 2012 and and 2013. I mean, most <laughs> everybody was dismissing crypto as this tool for for drug dealers basically, right? You know, Silk Road. Yeah. Like it was we, we didn't even we didn't even um we we didn't feel comfortable going public with our investment for for about 6 right. months. Right. It was embarrassing. We, <laughs> We're like the moment someone says, "Oh, you guys own Bitcoin." What are you like into, like uh, you know, yeah, illicit activity? Yeah, exactly. And drug dealers and Coke Road. I'm like, no, like that. That's not. That's not what it's I mean, about. Um, like listeners here, like who who are new to crypto. I mean, the 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 largest crypto exchange in the world was formerly a Magic the Gathering card exchange, and just pivoted to crypto. Like that's where we were back in 2013. Mm-hmm. Right, MT Gox is the you know the acronym for Magic the Gathering online exchange. That yes. was that was the base. I think it was the only. I mean, there was probably other exchanges at the time, but it was about ninety five percent of Bitcoin USD volume, and and they actually had a lot of other uh, fiat currency pairs too. That was the price discovery mechanism of Bitcoin for years. That, and 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 was the main ability to source back in 2012. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. And and it was it was um, also like if you people knew storing Bitcoin on Mt. Gox was super difficult. Um, and um, if you actually, this is a shameless plug, but if you uh, if you uh, pick up a copy of Bitcoin Billionaires, there's a chapter that goes through of how we actually stored a lot of our Bitcoin. Um, on paper shards in different banks and safe deposit boxes and this whole um, sort of mission impossible type endeavor. Um, and we just knew that that was like not feasible for 
for most people. Um, there's just not that many safety deposit boxes in the world or in the country. Um, so we had to make it easier and more secure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really a, a process of, of you guys making the infrastructure to go recruit the football team, you know, to rowing, basically. That's what you're doing with Gemini. And it, it, it totally uh, makes sense. Hey guys, just want to pause the interview real quick and talk about our sponsor, Ave. Ave is a DeFi lending and borrowing platform with a with some new cool features that you might not be used to compared to other uh, borrowing and lending applications on Ethereum. Uh, first and foremost, the feature that stands out to me the most is their fixed interest uh, loans. And so, you know, variable interest loans can get pretty hairy, right? So MakerDAO launched at 0.5% and then it slowly skyrocketed it slowly ramped up to 20%, which is, which is a very wide range of possible interest rates. And it's not really sustainable for, you know, some of the more typical things. And so that's where Aave comes in with their stable, non-variable interest rates, where you can lock in a specific interest rate and borrow against, uh, borrow assets using that interest rate and being able to depend on that fixed interest rate. Really important a really important money Lego that we need in the DeFi space to really have DeFi grow and mature in a dependable way. But that's not all you can do. You can also do flash loans on Aave, which is also a brand new money Lego where you can borrow, uh, you can borrow assets at without any collateral, so long as you also repay it back in the same transaction. Uh, so there's a lot of potential here. If you want to pay back collateral, but open up a different loan with different collateral, you can do that all in one transaction without all the slippage costs. So Aave and their flash loans allow you to do that. They are the number four biggest application in DeFi coming in at 70 million locked in DeFi right now. Uh, the bankless community really loves Aave and and we've just been watching Aave climb the ranks of the, of the DeFi market cap. So check them out at Ave.com deposit crypto to start earning or borrowing any Ethereum wallet will work. So try it out. I want to introduce you to a new sponsor on the Bankless podcast, uh, Maltus. Maltus is a way to run your business without a bank. So we talk a lot about the Bankless lifestyle from a personal perspective, but what if you could run your entire business without a bank? That's what Maltus provides. It's the first ever Bankless bank account for entrepreneurs who want to use crypto and traditional stablecoin currencies to run their business. So it has a multi-signature wallet. That means you can give teams access controls. One person can have the ability to withdraw from an account, set limits. So it has a multi-signature wallet. That means teams can get involved here. You can set access controls. You can take your stablecoins and some of your assets, and you can earn interest with various money protocols well, you have them parked inside of the Maltus account. You can streamline payments. They're also adding fiat on-ramps, so there'll be a bridge to traditional finance with US dollars and euros. You can open an account. This is super easy to do. We've actually featured it and written about it on Bankless. We will include an article in the show notes. But what you need to do now is open an account and try it out at www.maltus.co. So that's M-U-L-T-I-S dot co. And of course, we've got something for Bankless listeners. Maltus is brand new. Their newest release is, is, is new. They're on waiting list mode only now. But listeners of the podcast can jump the queue when you enter Bankless Podcast in the 
form when you sign up. So make sure you do that. Enter Bankless Podcast and you'll be able to skip the queue. You'll get a one month free trial of Maltus. If you are a business trying to go bankless, this is the way to do it. That's Maltus.co. Check it out. Okay, let's continue the interview with Cameron and Tyler. So, so there's this like evolution though in exchanges that we're starting to see, um, you know, and we call sometimes exchanges crypto banks, um, and they're really turning into full service offerings that are doing more. They started out as a custody and and trade, uh, but now they're starting to tackle some of the other money verbs like staking, for instance, or like lending and borrowing, and some of them are even going like you know the Binance 125 x margin uh option that you can trigger how do you see these crypto banks evolving and is that gemini's path too are you going to start essentially offering more of the money verbs uh and you bring you folks crypto that way so i think um long term i think that is one of the most uh exciting parts of crypto and why i think ultimately we're we're in this space and we really are super passionate because when you look at the world that there there's a billion plus unbanked people out there um, in this country alone there's millions of unbanked or underbanked individuals and if the banking community and system could could bank them they would um, and there's a lot of problems around identity that's part of the issue is how do you like identify and authenticate and verify an individual because that's obviously an obligation and a requirement um, I think ultimately we're headed in that direction, and Bic, you know, Gemini started out as a as a very straightforward sort of spot Bitcoin exchange buy sell store, um, and that actually involves multiple businesses under sort of one roof because in the typical world of equities, for example, you've got um, your brokerage like in E-Trade, you've got uh, an exchange like New York Stock Exchange. You've got the DTCC, which clears the transaction, and then you've got a custodian like State Street. There's about four major custodians, um, State Street being one of them, uh, Bank of New York, and JP Morgan, and Northern Trust. And, and these businesses are, are well over hundreds years old. And so in the ex- existing equity market, you have all these sort of pieces split apart. Um, in crypto, one of the cool things that I think it's most people don't quite realize is we've been able to build greenfield and, and imagine and actually collapse or sort of integrate the full stack, uh, at least on the side of, of virtual commodities like Bitcoin and whatnot. So we think there's a lot of interesting efficiencies there. It also makes it kind of challenging to say what we actually are. We often say, oh, we're a Bitcoin exchange, but it's really a lot more than that. And so I think the right word is platform. We are effectively a platform and we will be adding a lot more services um, over time. Uh, and, and I think we'll, we'll continue to do more and more services that look and feel like a bank. Now, whether we actually become a bank, that that's a you know, an open question because there's a whole new regulatory regime, um, you know, that is involved with with providing banking services, but there's a lot you can do with a trust company. So this is really interesting because I, you know, I, 
I have some mixed feelings about this. And I think folks in the, the bankless community do as well. So on the one hand, what we love is the fact that you guys are going and recruiting the football team and bringing like Wall Street and traditional finance uh, closer and also protecting users, making it easier uh, to buy. Lots of people aren't going to self-custody, as you said. They need a, an easy fi- fiat on-ramp. At the same time, there's a worry in the back of our minds that the crypto banks could start to become a bit more like the traditional banking system that we just left, right? So uh, not necessarily Gemini, but we, we look at things that, that maybe Binance is doing. And Bi- there, was a, there was a recent fork on uh, the Steam network, and it seemed like Binance and the leaders of, of Binance got involved and actually made some decisions as to which fork they were going to support. And it was really a, a political decision, essentially. And some folks on the, the fork that lost ended up losing their Steam tokens. So w- what's your take on that? How do we make sure that the, the new crypto banks of the future don't become like the old ones? How do you maintain neutrality in a uh, crypto exchange like Gemini? Yeah, so I think, I think it's, it's also, you know, I'd start first by saying Binance is unregulated. Um, I'm not aware of any licensure they have. Um, so, so there isn't a sort of a stakeholder uh, with oversight ensuring that uh, a company or organization does what they say they're doing. Um, they're you know, audit, effectively auditing or providing an additional assurance to that. Um, so it's hard to, uh, it, it's definitely not an apples to apples comparison and I think a lot of people sort of, um, they don't quite understand that difference a little bit. Um, and that is one of the major benefits to regulatory oversight um, is that we have somebody who's verifying. Uh, and we also have legal obligations around our customers and uh, consumer protections and privacy. Um, with that said, I think that, um, you know, I think that, uh, it's important. What, what, what's what's interesting is is a lot of people got into the internet through AOL, America Online, which is effectively a closed system, a walled garden of the internet. Yep. And AOL did a phenomenal job of onboarding millions of people into this crazy new cyberspace world. And and then people eventually they sort of migrated beyond AOL. AOL did not keep up with with the times, and it was you know, for, for many reasons, um, the, the internet moved, um, it's, it's become more closed over time, right? It, it sort of, it's open, then it gets closed, then it sort of opens. It seems to be closing again. And I think innovation tends to push, push it, you know, open again. And I think we're now, that's what we love about crypto in many ways is, is that Bitcoin offered a blueprint to decentralize the world. And so um, you're, we're going to see projects, especially around Web3, that are decentralizing decentralized services. So what I, what I think is, and perhaps to go maybe a little more specific to your, to your question or the thought, is that a lot of people you know, will, will onboard into crypto into an exchange like Gemini, and, and they'll be perfectly fine and happy with that. Um, but, but there may be people who start with Gemini and move into a more DeFi world. Um, and it's also possible, you know, 
we're, we, I mean, we are very interested in DeFi that we continue to move in that space as an organization as well. Um, so I think that uh, you're going to see um, a lot of evolution and, and taking a snapshot today is, is, is not going to be reflective of where, where we're going to be in five or 10 years from now. Yeah. And I, and I think another thing to note is the different needs of different um, people, customers. Um, there are engineering trade-offs between a decentralized exchange and a centralized exchange. You just couldn't have the volume, liquidity, and price discovery today, at least, on a on a DEX as you could on a centralized exchange. Uh, so the big market makers, the big high-frequency algorithmic traders, um, are used to centralized finance. And Wall Street is really it's the the street in 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 New, in downtown New York City is really symbolic. Wall Street's actually. Uh, a bunch of servers in a parking lot in New Jersey right now. And every inch that the server moves closer to the exchange matching engine uh, matters. And it's probably like, you know, um, centimeters matter kind of thing. And so, uh, but the more decentralized you get, the less speed um, and less of that performance that uh, you have, to, it's a, it's a trade-off. Um, and so like there's been a movement in, capital markets and finance over the last quarter quarter century to actually move things together for that performance. Obviously, um, that comes at a cost um, of decentralization. So going back to sort of like, is there one currency to kill all to be all currencies? You know, is Bitcoin, can, can it be everything to everybody? And right now, as like an exchange custodian platform, it's hard to be everything to everybody um, because of these uh, engineering trade-offs and the different uh, needs and demands of customers. So I think there's like a future where there's a couple of different versions of Gemini. And if you really need like the high performance um, and you love the regulated centralized um, part, then we'll have a stack for you. If you want to, um, you know, decentralize the clearing and settlement part or the custody, then there may be like a hybrid stack and going to the other extreme, um, there may be like a, a pure play decentralized stack. Um, so I think there, there's, there's a future where, where you may see different uh, versions of Gemini and it's sort of like, depending on the customer, pick your adventure. And this is how I sort of think about like the Gemini dollar, which is a centrally issued and regulated stablecoin versus let's say something like DAI, which is a decentralized algorithmic stablecoin. Um, if you're JP Morgan, you may love and, and think that DAI is super sophisticated in, in the future, but you may not be able to do business or handle a stablecoin that isn't centrally issued and regulated by a regulator, you know, um, you just may need to know the counterparties. And so they're different. Um, they're different things. They're both trying to be stable value mediums of exchange and in decentralized finance on the blockchain. Uh, but depending on who you are as a customer, your compliance department, your needs, like um, one may just be a non-starter for you.
Yeah, Tyler, since you mentioned J.P. Morgan, I, yeah, I got to ask. So uh, Jamie Dimon a few years ago made the statement that uh, you know, Bitcoin is tulips. Uh, it was a fraud. It was going to crash to nothing. Um, captain of the football team, right? Uh, now J.P. Morgan is actually banking Gemini and Coinbase. You know, that, that just happened, <laughs> I think, this month. How is that a big deal? Or like beyond the headlines, is that a really big deal for traditional finance to essentially start servicing and working with with crypto exchanges? It is, um, in our opinion, at least. Um, so the process of opening a, a bank account with JP Morgan took over two years, um, which included extensive due diligence of our compliance program. We had to go through risk committees, reputational committees, and ultimately um, what you saw, there was an, a Wall Street Journal article that we got, the banking relationship is the culmination of of two years in the making. So, and sort of going back to Jamie Dimon's comments, like, look, really smart, brilliant people get things wrong all the time. Um, you know, none of us are perfect. Um, we sometimes make mistakes that way. But I think it shows how good of a leader he is that he was able to, um, you know, look at the technical merits of of crypto, ultimately get it and and get behind it. Or even if he, you know, and I don't, I don't know if he's what his public statements have been, but even if he doesn't, he allows people in his organization to to get it and to understand, and he lets them run with it and and get the future. Yeah, so, I, I, it um, definitely what it's, seemed it's like a big, a big deal. deal to to us and to to those on the outside, sort of traditional finance plus crypto exchanges and that bridge being built. You know, I've I've kind of um, somewhat joked in the past that, and I just used the name Coinbase, but it could be Gemini. Coinbase is either going to get acquired by uh, an Amazon or JP Morgan, right? So all I'm saying there is that I feel like big tech is going to enter this space in a big way, and so is big banking. How do you how do you kind of look at that with, with stable coins and Libra entering the market, and then you've got traditional banks? You guys have bridged both both worlds, you know, social networking in the early 2000s and now now crypto and sort of on the banking side. Who wins? Is there a battle between big big tech and Libra and big banking, like the J.P. Morgans of the world coming? And, and who, if so, who wins? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting insight that you have, and I think um, what we're going to see is is crypto is really an intersection between finance in many ways and technology and cryptography, and a lot of the you know existing financial institutions they don't have a technology game uh, they don't have technologists in the organization who could build out um you know platforms and so the likely strategy may very well be to partner and or acquire uh the technology that you can't otherwise build and it does make sense uh, you know for a large financial institution to be looking at companies in crypto but it also makes sense for big technology companies to be looking at companies in crypto and it will be interesting to see who ends up doing more uh m a work and and maybe they're both competing you have these two different sectors competing on on the same companies which is obviously good for for price discovery in those companies to have more suitors um running after them but it is, you know, we're seeing that intersection, and and we saw that intersection with 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 technology, 
in other places like music and and movies and so in the you know it took itunes to come along to basically solve the recording industry of america's problems when it came to digital piracy um they really struggled to move from the physical formats to mp3s and this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning around beginner's mind and willingness to disrupt yourselves the recording industry and all of the record labels were unwilling to accept the future and the reality and to the point where they didn't just not accept it they fought it uh and they fought it uh aggressively for for a long time and technologists need just moved ahead of them and so you had napster centralized piracy then you had kazaa and bittorrent and it goes on and on and on and it was always you know a step ahead of of the of the actual um the recording industry and it took a company like apple uh which is you know famous for always challenging the status quo to say you know what i i there's a better way to do this there's a fair way to do it and when they when they invented itunes and created songs a la carte for a dollar a piece and it was fair consumers were like you know i i will pay for something that i feel you know is fair that i'm not getting ripped off i don't actually want this piracy experience i don't feel good about that most people don't we do want to support artists but we also don't want to get um you know we don't like highway robbery so i think that um you saw that intersection there and then with with streaming and movies netflix uh apple tv uh amazon prime hollywood the the, the biggest buyers of content in hollywood is is big tech <laughs> who would have thought that right um and you know you go to sundance with a film and and there's three people that you know there's three groups that are important and they're not from southern los angeles they're you know southern california los angeles though they're all now building i think studios down there and and they're going to have big big presences uh so i think that finance the you know what you're saying about this intersection of finance and technology is going to happen um in a big way i mean it's it's starting to happen uh but i think over the next decade it's going to get really interesting going further on that note uh we we've seen a lot of um you know tech companies try and become banks in a way right like so apple just has the apple card now starbucks has a billion dollars in loans from their uh from their um their cards that have uh, balances on them all these different tech companies are turning into banks in in a little bit in a little bit of a way and then all in likewise all these banks are trying to become closer to tech companies and turning to defi defi is really this perfect um split between finance and tech where all these the D, these defi teams look like silicon valley startups but they're building out uh what you would find in the legacy financial world so as we uh we're we're opening up the the defi can of worms here so as we get down into that further into that ro- uh, rabbit hole how do you guys think that DeFi and crypto exchanges like Gemini intersect into the future? So I think you know starting off what you're saying about um banks and technology companies. I think you know we work really well in concert together. Uh as we were mentioning just uh, shortly before, we're super excited about our uh 
partnership with JP Morgan and the fact that they're banking us. Um, banking is their core competency. It's not our core competency. Our core competency is obviously crypto. And I think that, uh, you know, centralized exchanges in DeFi, there's going to be a lot of great sort of partnership and working together um, in that in that area. Uh, we just listed DAI um, on the Gemini platform. We're super excited about it. That's obviously a fundamental building block. So we're, we, we think, yeah, we think, we think it's awesome. Um, and we want to, you know, start, we're starting by, uh, supporting projects and then continue to look at like how else we can integrate with projects or into that space. Uh, it's obviously a newer space. Um, you know, it's, it almost reminds me where Bitcoin was many years ago. Um, but super exciting to see all the smart people and teams moving in there. Yeah, so I'll just I'll just throw out there. So uh, I feel like we've had a lot of like Bitcoin exchanges and Bitcoin banks, right? And you guys pioneered one of them. Uh, it feels like right now, and I think I speak for the bankless community, and, and certainly David feels this way too. We want a DeFi friendly crypto bank, right? So a bank that is going to start onboarding the masses to DeFi protocols and Gemini listing Dai is a fantastic start to that because DAI, of course, is an algorithmic, crypto-backed, open finance, uh, stable coin. Is that is that going to be you guys? Are you gonna is Gemini going to be the DeFi friend, friendly bank for us? Well, we're certainly not going to be DeFi unfriendly, <laughs> um, but we. Um, I, I think it's totally possible. We we want to support DeFi projects. We want to support Web three, and all of that um, exciting promise. And so we're going to be working hard to continue to support that. And, and it's sort of hard to predict what that might look like a year or two out from now, because the space is evolving and moving quickly. Um, but we think it's a very important system in the crypto world, but really in the world in general and what's going on there. And so another project that we just listed uh, on Gemini is Link and bringing real world data into the blockchain and you there's so, so many interesting uh, applications around that and building smart contracts with um parametric information so for example an insurance contract where um a lot of times people buy flood insurance and it it you know you you can set it to if if the tide for example rises to this level the insurance pays out and it may or may not actually destroy the the building or whatever you're trying to insure, but because you've picked an objective thing, um, there's no question around it, so to speak. And it's a very kind of, a, it's an efficient way to price insurance and make a determination after the fact. Um, but if you don't get the information into the blockchain, then it, it, it doesn't really work. Uh, so putting that information into the blockchain and DeFi and smart contracts um, is super exciting because then you can just write contracts based on objective information. Um, so there's there's all kinds of possibilities. It's really, quite frankly, unlimited and, and endless. And sort of going on to that theme, a lot of times we think about Gemini as as a protocol company or rather a bridge between the old world of finance and the new world 
of finance. And I think a lot of um, people don't understand how hard it is to speak to these protocols, the different signing al algorithms, like understanding deposits, withdrawals, blockchains. They all have their own communities. Sometimes there's forks that are planned. Sometimes there's forks that are unplanned. Um, just a lot of different things happen. And if you list and support a bunch of different tokens for custody in trading, you have to be up on current events of all of these different blockchains and networks. And the, the idea of like a bank uh, being able to attract the tech talent to be able to interface with these protocols um, is really hard. Um, and some of them have tried, some of them don't. They try and partner with companies like JP Morgan, you know, partners with a Gemini, right? Or builds a relationship with Gemini. We also have a relationship with State Street to actually be the software sub-custodian sub provider for them uh, and their clients. And they actually, I think, hired a bunch of blockchain or engineers, maybe 100, 150 people to do this initiative and decided like, hey, this is not really core to what we do. Let's let the, the tech companies do that. We'll take care of the banking. Um, so these massive companies, State Street is the second oldest company in the country, I think it's 225 years old, have tremendous distribution networks and customer bases built in. And so if we can connect those, those portals to our bridge or portal into DeFi, that's incredibly powerful. The other thing that people don't quite realize is that when you're a bank, it's very hard to grow at the speed of tech or at tech multiples. And in fact, like um, if you have like more than 20% like year over year growth, um, the regulators find that suspicious. Uh, it's dangerous when a bank grows too big and the FDIC, who's the backstop insurer, um, so the OCC and the Fed both regulate, but the the um, the FDIC as well is is really the final gate to get through for a banking charter. Um, you 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 really wouldn't get the green light if you have like tech growth multiples because it doesn't really it's an odd bedfellow with the concept of growing a bank with with safety and soundness as your primary principle and objective. And that's ultimately what this is what what bank regulators are concerned with is safety and soundness of an institution. So running fast and breaking things and moving at the pace of innovation is incongruous with being a uh, large financial institution. So there's so many different variables. It's very hard for a zebra to change its stripes. And I think a lot of people don't understand these distinctions and how specific they are to different players that maybe overlap, but cannot play the same role. Um, so I think that like big finance is better off um, partnering, collaborating with tech companies. Conversely, like it's hard for big tech to come in here because they live in a world that's completely unregulated. Um, if you look at the like GDPR is sort of like these things are coming down, but social media companies, there's no regulation. If people are upset about Cambridge Analytica or these things, like there were no rules broken. You could disagree with philosophy or like that's on how I would run my company, but they didn't do anything 
wrong in the eyes of the law. Whereas um, if you are actually regulated like a bank, like GDPR is not like a new thing because you've been doing that for forever. Like you've been KYCing people, you've having, you've been having their personal identifying their PII information and protecting that like, um, like it's sacred for a long time. Um, you've understood like data and data protection. So com- building a business that's like basically completely unregulated with respect to information and data and then coming in and all of a sudden having to like uh, bolt on KYC is, is probably like also more difficult than it sounds. So like once you get in motion, you build like these this philosophy, like growth hacking, run fast, build, you know, break things. Um, and then you have to sort of like have the the act a little bit more like a regulated company. I think that's also very difficult. Gemini, we've been we've been tr- we've been trying to marry both from day one. We joke we've got you know a hoodie on one like on one side, and, and we wear a suit, we wear a suit on the on the other on the other side, and we've been trying to marry the ethos of like Silicon Valley tech chops with East Coast like financial markets and regulation and threading that needle. Other companies that have had to do that and I think have done that quite well, for instance might be a square. They, they're Silicon Valley visionary company led by a visionary leader, um, but they also had a uh, money transmission license. They just got um, an industrial loan bank charter. So they've lived, they've straddled both worlds and quite well and quite effectively and built something great. Um, and, and it's much easier to start from day one saying we're going to, you know, have that formation and that's going to be like our DNA than to come from, you know, one far side of the field or the other far side of the field and make your way into the middle. Uh, I want to, I want to bring up a subject that me and Ryan have been uh, chewing on a lot recently. This is a thesis that we have, which we've been calling the protocol sync thesis. And the concept is that, you know, blockchains, things like Bitcoin and Ethereum offer these credibly neutral protocols for, everyone to use massively scalable found all over the world uh, and you know all the good reasons that we love them uh, and uh, institutions or companies or services like Gemini but also others can tap into these protocols uh, and use them as they see fit for their benefit uh, and like just using Bitcoin and being an exchange on top of Bitcoin is they maybe a very early example of this um, but with DeFi, and Ethereum, Ethereum is like this protocol of protocols, right? And what we call DeFi apps are really just individual protocols on top of Ethereum, each one offering its own uh, a level of credible neutrality or dependability that centralized companies like Gemini can, can leverage to better improve their product that they offer for their, for their customers. So you guys just uh, listed DAI, which is, could be perhaps viewed as the protocol sync thesis where uh, things, uh, companies, centralized companies can uh, leverage dependable protocols on blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, and because they're dependable in the same way that the internet is dependable, uh, because you can depend on DAI being there, it's a good uh, business decision for you guys to offer DAI and DAI trading on your website. Uh, the thesis is that uh, uh, centralized companies like Gemini or, or crypto banks at large will use more and more of these protocols over time 
and the more dependable, the better. And so like if, if this thesis is correct, we would predict that in the future, Gemini might list or might make available the die savings rates. Uh, so not just having die on the platform, but also being able to put it inside of the MakerDAO protocol and get an interest on it. Uh, and then we could go even further and like maybe you guys just build out a an, an interface for the complete MakerDAO protocol, not in just including vaults, but also governance. And then there's so many other protocols that we could also talk about as well, like Compound, um, Aave, uh, any type of protocol can just be built and, and have an interface built on it by a, a, an exchange, an exchange like Gemini. And that makes Gemini a better exchange. It makes Gemini have more better products for their customers. So how do you guys feel about the, the protocol sync thesis? And and, uh, and do you guys resonate with that future? I, I think it's a very smart one. And I think, th I think it's correct in many ways. And I think that the more that we can offer to our customers, the, the better. And I think the more customers we can offer to a protocol, I think it sort of benefits both sides um, or all parties involved, if you will. Um, and I think, you know, it's almost like this, this, you can create, uh, the, the internet was a hard place to navigate pre web browser and pre sort of search. And so the more tools and experience you can give people to navigate these protocols, the better. Um, and, and if you can create a good experience, cause I think one of the challenges with a lot of the projects out there is it's like so hard to, to interact with them. Um, and that's just cause it's early, right? It was, it was hard to interact with Bitcoin eight years ago when we found it, it was, it was really tough. You had to be highly motivated to, to go buy it. And then you had to be, you know, motivated to figure out how to store it. And that's of course changed dramatically in, in a short period of time. And, and I think that the same is true with DeFi and, and, uh, and Web3. So I, I, I agree, and a lot of that resonates with us. Yeah, I was, I was going to joke, like it sounds like, I feel like you've been sitting in some of our roadmap brainstorming um, meetings at Gemini. But, uh, but definitely love that. You know, obviously, fa like phase one of, of crypto was buy, sell, store. But I think earn or use, um, you know, all these other use cases have to, ha like verbs, if you will, um, have to happen and have to be a part of the Gemini story. And so, yeah, it's really hard to interact with TCP IP and SMTP, but then people build applications like Gmail on top of it. Um, and if Gemini is this application that can onboard people and help people in a user-friendly way, um, interact with these protocols, whether it's earning money, um, which is a great, it's a great environment, right? To have the die savings rate or something like compound because we're going, we're zero net, we're zero interest rates right now in fiat world land and potentially uh, going negative. So, um, but, you know, I love this idea of like, yeah, like what we're talking about here is protocols and plugging into protocols. Self-driving cars, like the Internet of Things, when it arrives, like really arrives, um, it will be able to plug into a protocol like a self-driving car, but it will not be able to open up a bank account with JP Morgan. And so my uh, prediction is that one day Gemini may be may have more customers um, that are actually not humans, um, but actually machines. Now, maybe a human has an account 
and sub accounts off of their account where they run their fleet of self-driving cars. But ultimately, like we'll we'll be like KYCing machines because machines need protocols and interact with protocols and can do micro payments um, on the blockchain. When you know a car is on the road, it wants to pay another car to move ahead of it. Um, that's going to happen in the protocol world. It's not going to happen in ACH credit card, you know, Fed wire banking system. Um, and so that's the world that Gemini's, um, the future that Gemini's built, built towards. And we're translating between the old and the new. And we want to bring people into that new world because ultimately, like, I think that is just undeniably the future. Gemini as a bridge to money protocols, I've got to say, is a really compelling vision for where you guys are going. You know, and, and part of that bridge that you brought in the past is obviously the, the user experience, you know, the kind of the, the fiat onboarding, that sort of thing. But it's also been the, the regulatory aspect of it, and the regulatory clarity. Um, this year, DeFi just passed a billion locked inside of it, right? So that's a, not an insignificant amount. But that is definitely not the institutional money yet. So it, it seems a little bit like you guys made the analogy to it's like, it's kind of DeFi is like kind of like early Bitcoin in that the institutions aren't yet comfortable with it. What kind of regulatory barriers are there to say, you know, depositing something in compound through the Gemini interface? What, what sort of legal barriers need to be overcome there? Before we sort of get there, um, I think that's an interesting point of how you sequence people getting in to crypto nobody's first I, I don't think anyone's first uh foray into crypto is like i'm gonna go buy some die um i think it's like really simple right it's like i heard about bitcoin i've been hearing about it for 10 years oh my gosh the fed is printing so much money um maybe it's time to inoculate myself from the, mon the, the money printing disease like i buy the bitcoin gold thesis like okay let's buy some and when you know, a hedge fund like Bridgewater, AQR, they're going to go to a regulated institution or path to dip their toe in. Um, and it's a big toe because this is huge money, but they're going to try and they're going to start with buying um, Bitcoin. And then you have to bring them along, right? But nobody like people like uh, you experience crypto. It's hard to explain it. Once you get into Bitcoin, you feel it, you get comfortable. And then you say, hey, what's this ether thing, right? There's this evolution of people getting in and, and we need to meet them where they are, right? If you're Bridgewater or AQ or a massive hedge fund, you're used to calling up State Street or something like State Street or, um, you know, you do business in the regulated world. So we have to get them bridge from, you know, where they are to, to start getting them in. And then one day down the road, I think they can get behind die. They can understand it. They're very brilliant, sophisticated people. But I think it's important to focus on like the the, the initial battles that we have to win first. I also would just add that um, it's possible that DeFi, you know, the, the the elements of DeFi are really attractive to individuals who otherwise can't get access to the existing system. And so um, a lot of institutions, you know, they, they have uh, access to U.S. equities, but there could be people um, in the unbanked population, for example, who, who don't have access to U.S. equities. 
but some synthetic contract on DeFi all of a sudden gives them that access. So it's something that they need, but it's not relevant to a large institution in the U.S. or Wall Street. Um, so I think that's probably it, it could very well be a story where the people who need it really, really gravitate towards it at first. And I, th I think we saw that with Bitcoin a lot. Um, most of the world was like, hey, I'm, I'm OK with gold. I can buy a gold ETF and, and I don't know if I need this new store of value. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, you know, ironically started off as a as a very retail individual based market. And it's one of the few asset classes, maybe the, the only asset class in the world where Wall Street will be the last person to the party. On a recent interview you guys did, I believe it was with uh, Camila Russo, uh, you, you guys talked about your, your ETH holdings, uh, which uh, everyone in the Ethereum community was surpri surprised and happy to hear that they are, are, are sizable, uh, according to, to what you guys said in the interview. Uh, maybe you guys can give us your guys' uh, value accrual thesis for Ether, the asset? Sure, yeah. I, I'm actually surprised a lot of people... Um might have missed that. Maybe we've never talked about it before. Uh, I thought we had, <laughs> but uh, either way, um, yeah, we, we do own a lot of Ether and, and have for, for a long time. And I guess our thesis, um, stepping back, is really Ethereum is this amazing decentralized computer or, or operating system, for lack of a better word. And uh, like any operating system, it, it provides an environment where you can run applications and creates this sort of unbounded uh, opportunity of, of building. So that was our initial like, you know, aha moment. This is this is really, really interesting. Yeah, like Ethereum, um, when it when it uh, was launched and we, we looked at it, um, just the smart contract uh, aspect, the Turing complete nature. Um, you know, Bitcoin's digital gold, um, it seemed like Ether was going to make a really good run at digital oil, um, you know, if, if, to, to use um, the, the metaphor. So incredible community, again, very passionate. Um, and it felt like a, a real project. Um, so we were very uh, big. We, we are very big supporters and have been um, for a long time. And we're actually... I think the first uh, U.S. regulated exchange to actually list Ether for um, uh, trading in custody back in 20, uh, maybe it was 2016. So even before the ICO craze. Um, so, so yeah, big fans of Ether um, and have big, big holdings as well. Yeah, it's really cool. You know, David and I are from the tribe of, um, you know, e ETH is money as it's it's starting to be used inside of its ecosystem as a collateral and as economic bandwidth. It's it's starting to accrue this monetary property too. Uh, it sounds like you guys are, are are seeing something similar. But I want to ask this, and this this can kind of close it out for us guys because you saw rowing in in kind of your community growing up before anyone else did. You saw Facebook and social networking before anyone else did. You saw crypto very early as well. What are you seeing today, like now, that other people aren't? Like, because we want to buy it, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we, we could tell you, but no. Um, <laughs> so I think one of the things that I would, I would say in response to that initially is also 
sort of the time horizon of, of seeing things and then determining, you know, the, the lifespan of, of, of that particular thing. So, so when we look at social networking, um, it really, it sort of peaked. And, and uh, at this point, it feels like the centralized social networks um, are, are pretty well baked and, you know, they're growing probably at the pace of the internet um, at this point. Uh, and so is there a lot more to do there? Um, I'm not so sure, probably not. Um, but I think when you look at crypto, I would, I would, I would draw more of a parallel to, to the internet um, and, and the late 90s, early 2000s. And we're still, you know, 20, 25 years into sort of that modern experience where the internet was commercialized. And, and I don't think there's any sort of, you know, stopping or slowing down, so to speak. So we're, we're 10 years-ish into the crypto experiment. And I don't think, you know, I think it's literally just getting started, if that we're in like the preface of the, of the, of the novel. And um, there, there's so much to be done. Um, I don't think that, you know, there's going to be any shortage of ideas. So, so the space as a whole, I think, is so early and really unbounded. Uh, and I don't know if that's, it's a pretty broad answer, but I think that um, it's, it's important to know when certain innovations or trends have effectively peaked and there's not much more to do. And I think crypto hasn't even gotten started um, but I think generally like sticking to the big things that, that are, that, that make sense on a conceptual level, we've talked about Ethereum, like, is there going to be an operating system for, uh, the decentralized world? Uh, there will probably be more than one, uh, in generally like centralized operating systems on systems. There, there's, there's a handful of them. Uh, and in the case of Ethereum, uh, the more apps and the more vibrant um, that value tends to accrue into the protocol and makes it more valuable. Uh, that's a pretty easy concept to wrap your head around on a macro level. I think when you look at Bitcoin, you're, you're looking at a, a digital gold thesis and gold is 10,000 years old. So, so we're, we're year 10 or 11 into the next, what, 10,000 years. Uh, you could stay in Bitcoin for your entire lifetime and there's still stuff to be done. Uh, so these are, these are super, these aren't applications on, on, you know, the internet that have become sort of mature and, 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 uh, and saturated. Uh, when we're talking about crypto, we're talking about um, an entirely new network effectively or internet like these, sub internets. And, uh, so I think that, uh, you know, we, we try to focus on the really big pieces. Um, and we think that there's work to do for, for hundreds of years from, from now forward. Yeah. It feels like we're still in the very much like the infrastructure phase. If you go back to the internet, um, everyone's sort of like, uh, on a dial up modem right now. There isn't really fast like T1 or whatever T3 lines. Um, we're going through the analog like phone lines where people like 
at home can pick up the receiver and screw up your interaction and like all of a sudden you're winning <laughs> like I, I was in hour long multiple hour long <laughs> mom stop picking up the phone <laughs> oh my god yeah like it was just it just was crushing um and then you 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 lose yeah ultimately so she, she doesn't understand what's at stake that, you know the in these in the games like does. this in these war games um but ultimately when the success of a project right like crypto kitties effectively ddoses the ethereum network that's like my mom picking up the phone <laughs> and my age vampires game that's kind of where we are um and we haven't really had the the massive application um adoption use case moment it's you could say that like um maybe bitcoin is you know the first use case and speculation or investment is it but it's got to be it's got to be so much more um so focusing on like what are the important building blocks to go forward to like set the stage for that moment so if ethereum is decentralized compute maybe filecoins decentralized storage what other building blocks do we need die maybe one of them um, to go forward and lastly i'll say that um I'm very interested in um, just, just we we purchased uh, Gemini purchased acquired uh, Nifty Gateway, um, which is an NFT platform, um, and I think that you know the first incarnation of crypto as we know it was let's create decentralized gold, and then maybe we can bring stock certificates or utility tokens on the blockchain. I think ultimately um, we're going to bring art and collectibles onto the blockchain. We all grew up collecting baseball cards, comic books. Um, some of us graduate into, um, you know, collecting very expensive art at some point. Um, and I think I think there's going to be a push for that. And ultimately, I think it's just like being long human behavior. Um, it is human to express yourself creatively through art, collectibles, and also uh, to be a consumer of that. Um, and I and I really like that. The other thing I'd like to see um, is sort of the fusion of, of e-gaming and crypto. E-gaming so big, um, but it's also so walled garden. It's like the most exciting, fastest growing sport area um, in the world. Yet it doesn't seem like, it, and it's like, it's so, um, everyone in that world, I think, is totally into crypto or would be, um, but it doesn't seem like we we've brought it together. Um, but I'm sure we will. But that when that happens, when it has like the Twitch canon or the e-gaming canon comes over to blockchain, then it's just a again, it's like a whole nother step up. I'm glad Tyler sort of narrowed it in on those two particular areas because they. I think a lot of times we look at innovation and um, and we focus on the things that aren't as fun. And, and a lot of times innovation just comes about through people had a lot of fun through gaming. It starts out pretty casual. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is transformative and it's touching everything. Um, and I think e-gaming is one of those areas where where there's all these kids that are just having a lot of fun, but they, you know, they can't really get their, their identities or, you know, a shield or a sword out of the game. 
But if they could get it onto a blockchain, uh, that would really be a very interesting, you know, thing. And I think a lot of, you know, it's possible the next wave of crypto innovation is around gaming or art and collectibles. And it's just sort of fun stuff that doesn't have a high threshold of like require a super high threshold of trust. Um, you don't have to convince someone, hey, put like a super material amount of your life savings into this new asset instead of gold or or whatever. You're you're basically telling younger people who live online, um, have like incredibly important, their online identities are super important. And you're saying, hey, like, do you want to collect this online thing um, that's that's scarce and verifiable? Of course, <laughs> like, why not? Why wouldn't I do that? You have to convince them. You have to tell them why they shouldn't do that, not why they should. And so sometimes adoption comes through those avenues that you least expect. And here we are focusing on, you know, the synthetic S&P on DeFi. Like, how is that, you know, how are we going to get people into that? Which we will, but sometimes the side door um, or the indirect way, we may indirectly onboard an entire generation through crypto, um, not through the concepts of open finance or open DeFi or whatever, but through uh, this casual, fun way. And I don't, I don't think it's it's a it's a coincidence that Magic the Gathering, you know, Malgox was the first exchange. Um, it sort of kind of makes perfect sense that that uh you start out as this as this exchange for for uh, a card game and and it kind of moves into to crypto and 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 we may see that again um so it'll be interesting yeah absolutely i mean it strikes me that the key innovation of bitcoin is this innovation around digital scarcity and you heard it here first folks so the winklevosses think there are multiple waves of that innovation to uh, to come so kind of like there was a web one and there's a web two we're just in, in crypto one and a ton of opportunities are left in, in crypto 2.0 and, and 3.0 i do think that gen z will be all over the nft use case digitally scarce games as you said uh, they are more passionate about this stuff than than even millennials so it'll be exciting to watch I want to say on behalf of the Bankless community and our listeners, uh, Tyler Cameron, thank you so much for coming on. We learned a lot. We will look to Gemini for the developments uh, around DeFi. We're excited that you're adopting DAI, and we'll, we'll look forward to more innovation coming from you in the future, too. Thanks so much, guys. This was uh, really, really fun and uh, um, enjoyable. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Cheers. So action items, guys. There aren't currently many places to buy DAI today. You can buy it on decentralized exchanges. Coinbase also has a good order book. You should also check out Gemini's order book. They recently added DAI. It can become a great place to purchase it. So check that out as an action item. It's currently trading over a dollar. When it trades over a dollar, there can be some arbitrage advantage for you. So check that out. Also, second action item, what we want you to do is listen to a bonus podcast we're coming out with on Wednesday. So this is Monday when you're listening to this. 
This interview with Tyler and Cameron went so long. We covered so much material. We didn't get an opportunity to talk about the big picture items that we love to talk about on a weekly basis. So we're releasing that in a special bonus edition of Bankless that'll be coming out Wednesday. And finally, David, we need those five-star reviews, right, man? We always need those five-star reviews. That is how we get the bankless gospel into as many people's ears as possible. So if you think that more people should listen to bankless, which I hope you do, and if you don't, please let us know, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts and give us those five-star reviews so we can show up higher than all those crypto podcasts that came out in 2017, got a bunch of listeners from, from people that left and then are still kind of sitting there with after they haven't produced any content for years. So if you think that Bankless should show up higher than them, please go to iTunes, please go to wherever you listen to your podcast and give us those five-star reviews. That's the ask, guys. Take us to the top of the charts. Now, risks and disclaimers. Of course, what we talked about was risky today because crypto is risky. DeFi is risky. Even crypto banks like Gemini custody your funds, and there is risk associated with that. So be careful out there. You could lose what you put in. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.